0: Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis and Practice is the podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode, will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper, and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis in Practice the podcast. I'm the host Cody Morris, assistant professor of behavior analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Bill Heward about his paper in his own words Sigfield Zig Sieg, Engelman talks about what's wrong with education and how to fix it. Bill is Professor Emeritus in the College of Education and Human Ecology at the Ohio State University. He has taught at universities in Brazil, Japan, Portugal, and Singapore, and has given lectures and workshops in 22 other countries. His publications include co-authoring the books Applied Behavior Analysis, Exceptional Children, and Introduction to Special Education, and Let's Make a Contract a Positive Way to Change Your Child's Behavior. Awards recognizing Bill's contributions to education and behavior analysis include the Fred S. Keller Behavioral Education Award from the American Psychological Association's 25th Division, the LNP Reese Award for Communication of Behavioral Concepts from the Cambridge Center for Behavioral Studies and the Distinguished Psychology Department Alumni Award from Western Michigan University. A fellow and past president of the Association for Behavior Analysis International, Bill's research interests include low-tech methods for increasing effectiveness of group instruction in inclusive classrooms. This interview was a great deal of fun, and it's about a really, really fascinating topic. I'm really excited to share it with you all. So without further ado, here is my interview with Bill Heward. Hello, Bill, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast.
1: Hi, Cody. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to this.
0: Really excited to dive into the papers you wrote and the special issue focused on direct instruction. But before we jump into those papers, we always love learning a little bit about our guests. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your background, your current role and, and why you were interested in this particular topic of direct instruction well
1: I'll'll uh, cut the background story short, but essentially say uh, <coughs> I grew up um, in a little town, in Three Oaks, Michigan, about uh, 60, 70 miles from Kalamazoo and Western, but more importantly, within WGN uh, television range in the 50s and 60s, where uh, I could watch the Chicago Cubs and my uh, all-time hero, Ernie Banks. And so I grew up, uh, you know, certain I was going to be a major league baseball player and I was a pitcher. And <clears throat> so when it was time to go to college, I chose Western Michigan University uh, at the time. I came as a freshman in 67. Western was uh, a powerhouse, number four, uh, division one uh, baseball team. And, uh, you know, within a few years, uh, we were no longer quite so, as strong as we were. But coincidentally, um, you know, I, I, the same year, Jack Michael came as a faculty member in the, in psychology. And, um, you know, I'm there to play baseball. And I say, well, yeah, kid, but you got to take some classes. All right. I, I remember a uh, high school class half the semester, half the year was social, half the year was psych. And it was all this exciting, you know, mentalistic fantasized uh, stuff. And I said, I'll do psychology and everybody does intro to psych. Well, intro to psych uh, was Dick Malott uh, with, with, with five books and, um, one of which was uh, mimeographed a draft chapters of what would become a few years later, their classic whaling and Mallott, you know, elementary principles of behavior um, uh, textbook. And uh, there was a primer of uh, Freudian psychology. There was Holland and Skinner's um, analysis of behavior. There was uh, something called uh, so, um but I have still got them all on my shelf up here I'll I'll I'll, I'll run through this <laughs> this fast uh I was hooked half the semester was uh each student then had their own uh their own rat um and you were in a position to teach that rat to do some things and I did all the things that we do initially my rat was a little slow I thought and <laughs> I'd named him Ernie after Ernie Banks and you know, I said, "What? The, what's wrong with you? Get some more sleep." Uh, I blamed it on his parents, and you know, he's a little slow. And eventually, the, the you know the the contingencies Melod had created in the in in the course uh, were such that you know you you, you needed to get these uh, these cookbook lab experiments uh, you, you know done and demonstrated, and so eventually, you know, Ernie the rat taught me, you know, Bill the wet behind the ear students how to arrange his environment that Skinner box sufficiently so that not only did he press the lever then he learned to press the lever when the light was on and not press it when the light was off and end up he pressed the lever after uh, uh, rolling a marble across the uh, the floor of his nose but he didn't do that till he had pulled a little keychain that uh, I dropped through the top of the roof and well, I was pretty hooked, and I took the next class was uh, child development taught by Don Whaley, and he used the uh, some classic Bijou and Bear texts. They were new then, <laughs> um, and uh, on child development. Next course was uh, I'm a an eighteen year old. Uh, Student taking verbal behavior with Jack Michael <laughs> with 300 people in an auditorium in Woodhall. It was a blast. So I was I, I was hooked, and there was some uh, applied projects. Uh, Roger uh, Ulrich was working with essentially what would be a a, a Head Start uh, uh, situations disadvantaged preschoolers in Kalamazoo, and so I that kind of was my first foray into. Getting to experience and learn firsthand what um, you know, thoughtful applications of the principles of behavior could do to make things better for um, you know individuals with disabilities, individuals who are who are you know behind the eight ball for one one reason or another. And um, well, anyway, the baseball thing didn't <laughs> didn't work out as I thought. I wasn't pitching in Wrigley Field a few years later. I had to do something else. And, I end up in graduate school at the, the University of Massachusetts and again studying special education, which became my um, professional area of application uh, and, and behavior analysis as you know as the science um, underlying how to try to understand effective uh, instruction um, and, and evaluate it. And, and then as far as uh, you know interest in, direct instruction which was the focus of this special issue in behavior analysis and practice and a parallel complementary special issue also published in September 2021 in perspectives on behavior science um, so we had the two special issues on direct instruction um, and that came about through a variety of uh, a variety of things but um, not only my interest in trying to learn about and uh, help teachers be more skillful in strategies and tactics that really make a difference in effective instruction. And I was particularly working in uh, in inclusive classrooms in public schools, um, regular typical classrooms, but also, um, you know, including uh, some number of students with uh, individual education plans for various um, in response to, to to various disabilities, but our uh, our special ed uh, ABA program at Ohio State University, I came to Ohio State in uh, in '75. Um, we had in the um, late '80s into the early '90s there was a big movement in teacher training. It was called professional development schools. And the idea was to to get off campus, don't just do an ivory tower thing and that colleges of education and teacher training programs should have a parallel, should should have a a number of partnerships um, in schools where faculty uh, work with the teachers, the faculty in those schools together. Uh, We teach some of our seminars and classes there. We do research together. but our, our teacher trainees, the university students then spend more than the typical time uh, in a school. So not just some observations and then student teaching, but more uh, extended and extensive involvement in, in schools. Well, um, given our, uh, when I say our, my faculty uh, colleagues and I, John Cooper, Tim Heron, Ralph Gardner, Diane Sonata, Gwen Cartledge. Um, We all shared this, um, not just belief in, but passion for, um, you know, using natural science, in particular, behavior analysis, as a way to try to understand teaching and learning and then apply those principles and use those principles um, to make the the design and delivery of of, of lessons uh, more effective. So as a result of that, of course, we... in our own uh, in various ways where we're all uh, interested in and in learning about uh, direct instruction. We brought Kathy Watkins to uh, campus a couple times. And uh, Kathy, as I'm sure you know, is uh, there, there's no better expert um, in, uh, in direct instruction. <clears throat> we did some things with uh, Engelman and, uh, and, and his colleagues and, there were 10 elementary schools in Columbus. Um, that uh, in Columbus, Columbus <laughs> is actually the 13th largest city in the US that no one's heard of. Columbus is a is, is a big urban area. Um, and the Columbus City schools at the time had either 91 or 92 elementary schools. And of those schools, there were 10 that were using uh, direct instruction, DI. And uh, we're, we're bringing in uh, people from the National Institute of Direct Instruction to help train the teachers and the principals and, and really going at it in a, in a serious way. The other 80 schools were doing a variety of other approaches to early reading instruction, um, which you could kind of collectively say were, you know, uh, Constructivist, uh, a, a lot of uh, sight word, a lot of uh, guessing, a lot of pictureated reading, and 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 so forth. And um, so when we were, the dean said, "You need a professional development school." We said, "Well, we're going to go to Arlington Park Elementary School because we can find a home there, and and it was perfect." And so we we worked together with the uh, with the faculty and the principal, and uh, really just got that chance to see the power of when instruction is just not just delivered exceedingly well, but the teacher is masterfully delivering a beautifully designed planned lesson where there's not a, there's not a lot of noise. um, There's not a lot of responses that aren't under, you know, explicit planned stimulus control. Uh, The teacher can immediately see where kids are in terms of, uh, Mastering the skills, errors are corrected immediately, and uh, and and so forth. So then, the Columbus schools um, did um, an evaluation. There was a lot of interest in. um, as there remains today. You know, why aren't we teaching more children to be literate? You know, and to read and 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 to do well. And so there's this um, big interest in. Uh, exploring and understanding um, how we can be uh, more effective with reading. And so Columbus conducted their own um, really scientific uh, study. And um, they they spent a year uh, doing this. And when they evaluated it, the 10 schools using DI had the most gains in, uh, in performance. They were standardized, you know, reading assessment uh, tests, and there's a state of Ohio test of reading with kids by third grade that determines whether they're going to make it or not and whether they need uh, supplemental services and so forth. Well, the uh, the 10 DI schools won. Um, this is a lot like the project follow-through. If not familiar with that, I'll, I'll send some materials. Uh, Kathy Watkins wrote a, a, you know, a marvelous uh, analysis of that. That was an national Head Start, the largest social experiment ever done um, in Head Start programs around the, around the country. DI handily won, you know, that comp- scientific competition as well. Um, but the, uh, not only that, the 10 schools that were using DI, the 10 elementary schools, those children were um, the most disadvantaged, you know, virtually 100% of them are in state supported, uh, not only free breakfast, but free lunch and uh, the most kids are receiving special ed services and so forth. Anyway, uh, the, the school then decided the school district uh, said, well, you know what? Yeah, the DI work, but we don't like it that well. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to have our teachers just write a whole new program. And... <laughs> So they, they spent uh, five years um, developing their, their own program. It was called LACES. And um, the, the LACES program worked for a couple of years. They spent millions of dollars on it. They've eventually used all the kids in the schools, you know, kindergarten through second grade as uh, guinea pigs and their own study after they had enough data to show how, to, how they could effectively teach kids. And then, uh, you know, that one went under uh, a few years later, and they just went back to buying another, you know, multi-multi-million dollar commercial um, reading program, a so-called balanced programs. And sadly, there's uh, one or two schools left in Columbus where you can find some teachers still still doing DI. That story um, that I've just, you know, mumbled through and not done a reasonable job of uh, of describing it. I'll follow up, Cody, if your listeners would be interested. I will send you, uh, I wrote a uh, an op-ed piece in the Columbus Dispatch about this. There were some uh, follow-ups um, with some uh, advocacy groups and an interfaith group uh, in Columbus, really uh, demanding effective instruction and kind of the outcome of that. Uh, sadly, the Columbus schools are, are still um, not using as as much. There there are many marvelous teachers in the school system, uh, and, and, but uh, not uh, applying uh, DI or positive behavioral uh, supports for that matter to the extent that they might or could. Um, so I get a uh, I get a phone call a couple years ago from um, the uh, National Institute of uh, Direct instruction. Um, And they asked if I would be interested in putting something together uh, for an an ABAI uh, conference. Uh, Engelman had recently passed away. And I I just kind of recalled all of this. Absolutely. And anyway, we ended up doing a symposium uh, at the uh, 2020 uh, conference. We ended up being an invited symposium um, on. uh, Siegfried Engelmann and his contributions to uh, effective instruction and uh, the people that I I invited in, many of them are the people that, you know, that morphed into these special issues. And many of those are the folks, the authors of the various papers uh, in in the special issue. But the same kind of frustrating things of how how can we help? And it's not just in education. What can behavior analysts do? We're pretty darn sure we've got some some solid strategies and tactics for uh, you know making the world a better place, whether it's in education or uh, you know healthcare or you, you name it. And how how do we possibly uh, disseminate, communicate, teach that information to? Uh, policy makers um in this case would be the educators and um nobody has the answer but we 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 keep trying um there's a marvelous paper by uh, by pat freiman um and i'll send you the link to it it's it's in the uh, parallel or complementary special issue on di the one published in perspectives on behavior analysis where pat uh, writes uh, eloquently as he uh been doing for a long time, just what we behavior analysts need to kind of wake up to in terms of effectively uh, talking about and presenting um, and uh, politicking um, what, this, what this science, what this, as Pat says, this way of thinking, the importance of consequences on our behavior uh, to be more effective. So how's that for just a ramble? Uh, yeah, you asked a very reasonable uh, question. I'm not sure how much of that was uh, that was, <laughs> was perfect, it, what, even close to the question, but no, that
0: was perfect. I think it really helps build the context and describe the importance of direct instruction and the need for a direct uh, instruction special issue in a behavior analytic journal. And just building sort of information around or knowledge around this incredibly important tool. Oh, or, uh, or or strategy or or I don't know if "tool" is the right word. Um, system, it's really, system.
1: A, it's, a, it's really a system because yeah. it entails. I think that's a, a not just a, a, accurate but a important way to talk about it. Because when you when you watch when you get to see a, an expert DI teacher at work and the kids in the school, it's exciting. I mean, yeah. I get I get chilled But what you see and hear, And when people get to do that, they're, they're much more likely to join our team. God, that's nothing like this stilted robotic (laughs) stuff I've heard about. And the kids are having a ball. They're being successful. It's fast paced. It's fun, but there's so much, it's that iceberg, you know, the tip of the iceberg and what's underneath is this brilliant, the analysis of the content, the knowledge and skills that are being taught. Uh, and in this case, with direct instruction reading, you know, be, beginning with co- decoding the, the mystery of these printed symbols. Oh, and they stand for the sounds of when we speak and talk. To, ah, and those are words. But the design of, uh, of that. And that is what, uh, you know, Engelman and his colleagues that, um, uh, you know, developed. And did the, it still continues today, the, the R&D on direct instruction uh, just became so masterful at. Um, and so the, there are, there are some of the articles, um, in the, and in, in particular, in the back, um, special section, um, that, uh, that explain in, in, in detail kind of, well, here's, here's the parts of it. And here's why it, it you know, why it works the way it does. And then you want to do more of a deep dive as they say. And, uh, Get a little, little more uh, serious. Go into the into the papers. Janet Twyman has a couple uh, wonderful papers. Uh, Tim Slocum and uh, Kim Rolfe. and uh, and then Ed Kamai Nui just has this fabulous paper in uh, Perspectives on Behavior Science, and he calls it um, uh, an an ode to uh, Zig and to the Bard, and he relates uh, what Engelman did and the way he thought about the assumptions he made about teaching and learning and what a child who doesn't know how to read would have to navigate in an environment. That, and he related it to what he, what he ended up coming up with is this whole direct instruction system is somewhat like uh, Shakespeare plays where there's, the, there's all these pieces and they're all important, but the, the whole is so much bigger than all these, these parts. It's, a, it's really a tremendous... Tremendous, uh, tremendous read.
0: Well, we'll be sure to link to that. And, and thanks for the clarification. Directing, what you kind of have been talking about so far is just the importance of direct instruction as a system. You provide two papers within this special section. One is an introduction to the special section, which I think you've done a good job of sort of summarizing already. And then your second paper, focuses on uh, specifically the sort of founder of direct instruction, Siegfried or Zig Engelman. And so that paper is called in his own words, Siegfried, Zig Engelman talks about what's wrong with education and how to fix it. Before we get into what this paper was and, and how it came to be in your introduction paper, when you talk about the various topics that are covered within the special issue, which are sort of numerous, and there's a lot of great resources, and we'll be covering a lot of those papers in this podcast, you refer to your own paper focused on Zig Engelman, and you compare his discoveries on teaching to uh, or teaching more and less time specifically. To Lobos's work with autism, and you equate them as being both just absolutely pivotal moments. Um, Why is uh, to you Zig held in the same regard as Lobos in terms of of what he was able to do?
1: That's a great that's a great question. And and as uh, we're putting together uh, the, the special section and. And but Janet nine, Janet, Janet Twyman's a co guist editor on both of these uh, with me. And she's uh, she's of course just really and a wonderful behavior analyst and an educator uh, and writer. And you know, and we've been, I'm not a direct instruction expert, and I'm not a reading instruction expert. I want to make that absolutely clear. I've learned some some things uh, uh, about reading instruction. Um, you know, as a function of uh, what I did to help train special education teachers for uh, 30-some years at, at Ohio, Ohio State and conducting research with teachers in schools. and Oftentimes, it's, you know, related to, uh, uh, to reading and reading-related uh, skills. Um, but when you, when you start to learn about um, DI and then you keep going back and you look at the powerful, just again and again, the, the research results. And it's just, it's just uh, over the top. It's not, um, you know, this would be statistically significant at the 0.01 level or anything like that. It's as Don Bear, you know, once said, when with the visual analysis, when you see it, it hits you between the eyes. They don't need any fine tooth comb, this has it, but the kids do a little bit better. So one of the um, invited papers, and it was an invited presenter for, um, for the symposia uh, that we did at ABAI a couple of years ago, her name is Jean Stockard. And Jean is a professor America at uh, the University of Oregon, where over a number of years she had worked alongside and done some projects with Engelman and the other key developers of direct instruction. And uh, some years ago, she and uh, some of her students and colleagues uh, tackled pulling together, there's there's been literally hundreds of peer reviewed experiments. In fact, it's 300 and some on DI, you know, from from kids from, uh, from preschool through secondary with and without disabilities in all kinds of instructional environments and arrangements. And it's not just DI for reading and early literacy, although most of the research is there. Um, there's direct instruction programs in, in mathematics and in logical thinking, in writing, in basic scientific logic and so forth. But Jean Stockard, they, uh, and they have a book now, and I'll link all of this uh, for you, but her her article in uh, in Perspectives is a is a, they did a really a it'd be a mega analysis. It's a meta analysis of all these various meta analyses that have been done on uh, on direct instruction, and it's just hands down. It's like creating how much do children. Um, with autism benefit from EIBI, Early Intensive Behavioral Intervention. And it has been this similar um, mountain libraries full of research showing that EIBI is the best game in town. It's, it's not a miracle. Uh, every child doesn't make all the you know gains in the world, but virtually every child uh, benefits for the time being, um, we, and that's the collective we, that's, uh, you know, like the uh, medical associations and the American Association of Pedi- Pediatrics Association and governments around the world set, and insurance companies and state legislators, you know, there's enough evidence that EIBI is effective and improves the lives of children with disabilities, with autism, uh, and their families that will pay for it. And that's the ultimate, I guess at least in the Western world, uh, um, indication that something's, uh, something's working. Okay, back to, back to DI. Well, wait a minute. You'd say, but DI is not used in all the schools. There's not, state departments of education don't tell the public schools, you know what? You really need to be doing this because it's got the most data. That's not there. But what Janet and I realized and others have realized this, before you look at it, And especially Stockard's uh, study in her article made it clear that there's every bit of the same amount of powerful scientific peer-reviewed evidence of the effects of DI um, that if and when, let's be optimistic, we need to be, when um, schools make direct instruction um, more of a player um, in instruction, especially early reading instruction, the the, the effects would just be mon- monumental. The outcome would be it then be recognized um, <clears throat> on the same level um, uh, of importance. Some might argue, well, even more because we're talking hundreds of millions of kids in, around the world, you know, learning learning to read and become and become literate. So that's 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 really where that. Uh, that came from, and of course, you no one has to or shouldn't take, uh, you know, our words for that or in this paper suggesting that, but check it out and you know, make your own decision.
0: Awesome, thank you. And it seems like when, when you're interested in direct instruction, all roads lead back to Engelman, and sort of within that theme, you uh, within the special issue, you you published a paper that's really a transcription of an interview you did, or sort of a guest presentation slash interview you did with Engelman in 1992. could you talk about the format of that interview and how that came to be? Sure.
1: Um, um, Zig was called a distinguished guest faculty in um, a, a, a doctoral seminar that I began in 1988. So this was still pretty early on, maybe this fourth or fifth year um, when, when he came on. And essentially, it was a poor man's distance learning or, uh, or more to the fact uh, is, is really a Tom Sawyer thing. <clears throat> so, you know, I'm uh, teaching our, our doctoral seminar each autumn quarter. And we arranged our doctoral program such that we had cohorts come in. Um, And so PhD students would go through the three-year program as a cohort and and, uh, take a number of uh, standard required courses um, uh, together. And we used this autumn uh, quarter. OSU then was on the quarter system semesters now, but uh, 10-week quarters with an 11th week for exams and such. So we did the uh, autumn quarter uh, seminar. Um, I, I realized that w- when we had the first, second, and third year students together, so that helped build this community as, as well. And I, I realized right away that after a couple weeks, uh, I, there's not a whole lot left that I have to, to share with these students, and they deserve a lot better than that. <clears throat> so I said, I know. Let me see if I can get uh, uh, Don Bear and Murray Sidman and Sid Bijou and Jack Michael and Sigrid Glenn and Judy Favell and Julie Vargas to teach my class. So this predates you know anything like uh, like like email. We're sending stuff and you do dial up on phones with cords and you send mail back and forth and the snail mail and. So in the, in the spring of that first year, I reached out to, in that first year, I think it was a bear, John Bailey, uh, Richard Hawkins, Judy Favell, maybe Julie Vargas. um, Had 10, 10 people. I, 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 I know where I, I, I talked to them at the ABBA convention in May. I said, Oh, I got this great idea. So I said, um, how, how about if uh, you spend an hour and a half next fall in my, on a speakerphone uh, with my students and you send a, a couple of articles and later it became people would send things they were working on, it'd be chapters or with, with the case of Engelman, this book that we talked about with him, he sent us the pre-pub galleys. It wasn't even published yet anyway. So, and then they'd send their curriculum vita which was mind blowing, you know, to get, you know, Don bears uh, cu- curriculum vita and, and look at that and say, Oh my God. <laughs> so, um, so really what it was, it was like, you know, Tom Sawyer, when he gets uh, Huck Finn and the others to whitewash this long fence of his, <laughs> he knows he can't do it and he tells them it's going to be such a great deal. And this turned out to be the coolest, the coolest thing ever. They, they, um, I, I did the course until I um, retired in 05 from OSU. Uh, Sheila Albert Morgan, um, who is the faculty coordinator of, uh, of OSU's uh, ABA program, has been uh, teaching it ever since um, each year. And now there's been you know several hundred people in behavior analysis and leaders in special ed that have been on it. Um, Many times, multiple times, you know, Don Bear was on it three times. Uh, Michael was on it three times. Um, and so what we would do is the students would, uh, prior to that week's session, they'd read the papers that GIS faculty uh, had sent. And each student would come up with a couple of questions they'd like to ask. And then we'd get together before, uh, and literally it was a speakerphone in the middle of the table. And before uh, dialing up the, uh, the, guest faculty for that week, we'd spend about a half hour with the students and go around the table and preview the questions and kind of get that, uh, that cleaned up. Um, I would always begin by really asking the question that you asked at the outset is I just say, well, how'd you, how'd you get involved in this? How'd you end up, you know, studying, uh, what was you, where'd you first hear about the Skinner guy? How'd you become an, an educator? And so, and the stories are just fabulous, really interesting. Uh, those stories themselves are worth the price of, of admission. Uh, and then we'd go, you know, around the horn and each student would uh, would ask a question. Before you know it, the hour and a half, sometimes it go two hours. And um, fortunately, um, I was with it enough to, I, I still have today, I have old scratchy cassette uh, audio tapes of, Uh, of these uh, of these uh, seminar sessions and so when Janet and I were working on uh on this um direct uh the direct instruction special issue it dawned on me geez Engelman was you know was on the teleconference let me get this out let me see if it makes any you know if it's possible to hear it and so I spent a couple days you know I'd listen to a few seconds type it listen again type ended up with the, the transcript where it's 95% there, There there's a few little chunks where, it's like when you're doing a Zoom and everything goes out for a while that we missed. And then um, my co-authors here, uh, Jonathan Kimball, Kelly Heckman, Jim Dunn, they're all behavior analysts doing good work. Jim in Maine, Kelly in Louisiana, uh, uh, Jonathan in Maine, Jim's at Wright State University, but they were PhD students at the time uh, in the course. And um, at that time, uh, I had this uh, still not completed today, you know, plan of this stuff is gold, Let's do transcripts, you know, let's put it together and you know, maybe uh, do some papers that would be titled something like, you know, they said it, you know, comments by, whatever. And we'd do one in special ed, one in APA. Uh, it never happened, but we got started on it. And so when this came around, I just I called Stephanie, I said, do you think this would be, you know, useful, relevant for this special issue. And she said, of course, and got to work on it. And then I, you know, wanted uh, Jonathan and Kelly and Jim to be, you know, a part of it as well, because they had put a ton of hours into the uh, the different cassette tapes, you know, back in the day. So then we ended up, um, you know, as is typical here, like what you'll do with this podcast, you know, you and your uh, podcast uh, colleagues, well, <laughs> have the hard task of going through and uh, weeding out to trying to find, is there anything Bill said in there we can piece together and make a podcast? And it was quite the opposite here. We had so much great stuff with Engelman. He was like many of our guests, so much fun, so personable. The thing that comes through the most, and I think you can get some of it. We hope you can in reading his paper, but the passion. And when you hear, hear his voice, uh, it's, just, it's just tremendous. So that's, that's kind of, uh, Cody, where, where it came about. Um, and, uh, but, but again, it's been such a, uh, um, an interesting uh, experience, both for faculty, both for students that sit in on and participate in this, all three years of their doc program, and now master students that are, that are doing the, the BCBA sequence take it as well. But faculty sit in, uh, you know, the OSU Special Ed and ABA faculty as, as well. So, you know, sometimes there'll be uh, 30 people in the room. And, uh, you know, so now, you know, today we're listening to uh, Stephanie Peterson or Linda LeBlanc or LA Kazemi. And uh, it's just uh, it's fantastic. It's a lot of fun.
0: That is awesome. What a phenomenal resource for the students. And in this particular case with the, with the Engelman interview was what a treasure. Like as I was reading through this, this interview, like essentially the transcripts of an interview, I just thought like, this is so amazing that I'm able to see the way that he's interacting with the students and the faculty who are asking questions. And as you say in the paper, sort of his, his, boldness and his willingness to go straight at a straight at a, an issue um, I, I think you your words in the paper was that he was definitely not shy coy or pulling any punches in, in these answers and yeah. the, the amount of times I was reading his answers and and sort of like laughed out loud because of just how <sighs> sort of blunt and straight to the point he was about something and he's got so many clever pithy quotes that are just like these little quotable chunks throughout this interview and all his work of course but just even within this interview it was it was truly a a pleasure to read Uh, I highly recommend all the listeners just check it out uh, and read through the transcripts Uh, there's a just it's packed with super super uh, interesting and relevant and, and important information Now, for for our purposes within this interview, I'm not going to ask you to recount every single thing that the Engelman talked about. um, But I'm wondering for you, were there any major points that Engelman made or or ideas within the interview that you feel like are especially interesting, relevant or important to talk about?
1: Well, one thing that comes through, in addition to his, you know, his humor and his commitment and his passion is, of course, his, his frustration. Um, and I guess that'd be a, perhaps, a, his frustration was spending a lifetime, uh, you know, devoting his life to developing and, and, and seeing the powerful effects of, of well-designed and delivered instruction and what it can do, particularly. I was just going to say
0: with the, with the frustration he experiences, and I'll let you uh, build your point on this, but he had an amazing quote uh, that he said within the interview when talking about his own frustration. He was talking about direct instruction and in the utility. He said, uh, I quote, it can be done. That's the terrible part about it. That's the frustrating part about it. Like he, he knows that he has this powerful tool and that ultimately it wasn't being utilized to the extent that he wanted it to be. And so, again, just kind of bringing this back to uh, his really poignant way of, of talking about these things, mm-hmm. I think.
1: Yeah. And therein is, I think, a real parallel to, uh, to Skinner, you know, and late in, in Skinner's life where it was, was evident and he shared it, you know, this, you know, society, here's this, uh, you know, Useful way to understand uh, behavior and how it works, and how we might arrange our environment, make things the way we'd like them to make it better. You know, from again, from the education, or you know, now saving the world from climate change or COVID or anything. And and, and Skinner just you know became pretty pretty despondent uh, late in life, and understandably so, um, and. Uh, so Engelman, he literally sued the state of California uh, at one point and he won the lawsuit. And the state um, Department of Education um, managed to get a stay so that they long enough, with, and, and, and wanted that there was going to have to implement some DI in the schools. That was the, the point of it, not just the, oh, I, I'm suing you to show it was, darn it, you're going to have to use some effective uh, instruction to teach whole generations of kids this. And, uh, and they managed to, uh, to put, off the, uh, put it off long enough to pass a, a law that said they could do uh, pretty much any kind of the standard uh, curriculum. So um, I'm looking across the, uh, I think I've got the books right here. I will, uh, I'm going to link, uh, two of Engelman's books. I'm sure they're, re- they're referenced in the paper. Um, but the one is called war against schools, war against the schools, academic child abuse. And he relates these experiences. And then the last one is teaching needy kids in our backward system, 42 years of, of trying. And, but, but, you know, he never gave up. Um, and, and, and his, um, his colleagues and, uh, those that have, uh, you know, trained and, and studied with him and took his, uh, his concepts and continued to develop them and apply them in a variety of ways. And you mentioned Trina Spencer is going to be a guest on the podcast soon. And Trina a, a, just a wonderful example of that. And Trina studied with Tim Slocum, um, Utah state, I believe. And, uh, you know, through there, got her introduction to behavior analysis and effective teaching. And now she's doing some, uh, some marvelous programs uh, that take these fundamental concepts at the heart of DI and, uh, and, and use them to design a variety of, uh, of lessons, uh, teach a variety of things. So, yeah, the, 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 the frustration... Um, uh, does come through, but um, I, I, I think I think reading it helps you get a, a sense of how important it is to uh, both the design and then the the delivery of any kind of lesson is to focus on it's the it Skinner's the rat is always right is Sidman's the child's always right. You know, and so he'd say, whatever the kid does is the truth. So whatever the kid does, and Don Bear talks about this in a lot of his stuff on, uh, on trying to understand, you know, stimulus control, and we want to teach this generalized lesson, and the kid learns another lesson. That's the truth. You know, whatever the, whatever the learner does or, or doesn't do our, our our lesson, the design and our delivery of it is, is, is a big part of that. So it just does no good to say, "Well, darn it, you know, you're too slow, or you're not ready, or this or that." We've got to change something, uh, and that maybe is the that maybe is the ultimate, you know, kind of a touchstone for, for for DI is that you know his he said it's not a slogan; it's an operating principle if the kid, if the student hasn't learned the teacher hasn't taught. And so when you do that, when you buy into that, of course, it's a big responsibility. It says, well, it's it's on me. Uh, doesn't mean I'm a loser, I'm a failure. I'm a lot of a lot of us tried to teach, haven't taught. But if, if the, the only thing I can do to try to be more successful or more effective is then to look at that lesson and how I'm delivering it.
0: And so he really seemed to preach accountability.
1: Yes, right? and, and, well
0: said. Yeah, and, and, and again, uh, so many uh, amazing quotes that he has around that, and to emphasize the one that you already stated, and, and you include this quote sort of under a picture of him within the article, but if the student hasn't learned, the teacher hasn't taught. That's not a slogan, that's an operating principle. Um I think that that second piece of that quote of "it's not a slogan, it's an operating principle" is is very interesting. Why do you think he's he's feels strongly to differentiate? If we're not we're not just saying this; we're doing this. Why is that important?
1: Well, I think it, it, it's evidence of his commitment of what what he and his colleagues did in the you know the research and development, the continuing. Uh, ever ongoing R and D with uh, with direct instruction, and they would not publish a program until something like you know ninety percent of the kids learn ninety. That's unheard of in education. Stuff just put together and oh let's start, put a nice box on it and make it fun and you know and send it out. And they were just absolutely committed to evidence by the children that they've acquired these skills and, uh, and can use these skills. And so I, you know, and I think it's, we, we can, we can say things that are, you know, our slogans, but operating principle gets back to that idea of it's, I guess, for us in behavior analysis, a functional analysis of it's not learning. Let's take it apart and try to understand what, what are the aspects, antecedents, consequences? Is it the form of the response the students making? Uh, is it the error correction? Can we look at how we're uh, responding to errors? Um, so just that constant uh, evaluation and revision and refinement of the programs, I guess that's the operating principle part there.
0: It seems like a, a part of Engelman's frustration came from students, in many ways sort of helpless students, being exposed to just, in many cases, outlandish uh, strategies or ideas that really have zero evidence of being effective, and how this just repeatedly happens, and how administrators come in with these new ideas, but at the end of the day, the administrators aren't really held accountable for for failures to learn, and and if you're trying out an intervention that doesn't have any evidence, you're potentially affecting someone's trajectory of their life negatively, right? If you're like, oh, I've got this new theory on reading, and you try it in an elementary school, and the students don't, don't learn to read, I mean, that's affecting the quality of their life for the rest of their lives, And so he identified this, again, this interview took place in 1992, and and a lot of it had to do with a lot of the current theories that were popular at the time and a lot of the the politics that was happening at the time. Do you see or have you seen since 1992 any changes or does it look like, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of what Engelman talked about is still relevant and, and problematic?
1: I, I hate to say this, but um, it's not any better. Um, I'm, uh, I'm looking at, uh, collected some things. We did this symposium. This is a, um, a story in the Atlantic. Students in Detroit are suing the state because they weren't taught to read. This is year before last. Federal appeals court sides with Detroit public school students in literacy lawsuit. Uh, I'll send you some links to these things, Cody, but it's absolutely, uh, it, it, it's the same. I, uh, I took out some uh, frustration about uh, 20 years ago. I, it was really just a, a cathartic rant. I, I spent about three years of putting together a, a paper. It was published in the Journal of Special Education called um, 10 Faulty Notions That Impair the Effectiveness of Special Education. There's only one of the ten that are specific to special ed. They're generic, and you know, there's the there are these just fundamental ideas that are not that are widely held in um, in education and uh, probably more importantly in teacher education programs and by teacher education faculty. And um, you know, you've the most, but the one that's related to special ed is you. You, you must be patient if you're a good special ed teacher that you, you know, you've got a heart of gold and you pay kids. Don't need patient teachers. They need effective teachers. You really should be in, teachers who are impatient with lessons that don't, you know, that, uh, that, uh, that don't teach, you know, it's better if students um, construct their own meaning from lessons, which is just the opposite of direct instruction says we've analyzed the content to be learned. We we've st- figured out what, to read you need to do these things we're not going to let you try to figure that out why we don't have a heart surgeon you know have a go at it you know see if you can figure out or do it your own way no you want to follow a script you want to do it effectively you know another one of those classic uh still widely held beliefs about uh, effective teacher a good teacher is a creative teacher Mm. there's a lot of roles for being creative whether you're a uh, you know, a behavior analyst working out a uh, a, a plan for uh, helping uh, helping a restaurant staff, you know, be more polite and effective with uh, with customers, or a coach of a little league baseball team. And you know, there's there's a role for creativity when it's attached to a good understanding of the strategies and tactics and basic principles that you need, not just let me grab this and grab that and you know, I end up with this uh, eclectic mix that's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and it's really I mean, not, not anything. Uh, and that's one of those faulty notions that, you know, eclecticism is good. It's since no one way of looking at the world knows everything and it's got everything right. And that's, that's true. Uh, let's just take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and, that. and that's a mess. But so this notion of a good teacher is a creative teacher. So a lot of teacher ed... Assignments and activities. Well, one is it often begins with uh, d- develop your own um, theory of pedagogy. As soon as they say pedagogy, I know I'm in trouble. We can't say teaching, you know, but pedagogy. Can Can you imagine again? Go back to the, I don't know medical practice or even the uh, valvoline training people to change the you know your motor oil. Kind of imagine how a, an internal combustion engine works. This is what we're doing with a lot of beginning teachers. You create your own because it's as good as anything else. And then this idea of creativity, you say, well, um, I, I'm going to be judged on. Am I doing something different all the time? And this is it's a place for creativity. Got to be fun or it won't be fun. Stick Malat says so it should be fun what we're doing. But so imagine next time you get on an airplane and you know, the pilot comes on and you hear her say, all right, uh, put your uh, tray tables up, seat backs upright, and uh, we're getting ready to come in. And he said, by, by the way, I'm going to try a new way to land the plane. I, I I learned about it in a workshop this weekend. This is what happens in, in schools and in classrooms all the time. Just that, well, I'm going to I'm going to do it this way or I'm going to do it that way. And in professions that are guided by, you know, the the best technology based on the best understanding of the related best applications of the sciences that are related to that, uh, to that profession and the technology that will help us do that profession. You know, they don't, they don't do that. Uh, yeah, don't get me going on that. <laughs> anyway. I um, love it. Yeah. And
0: I love yes. the experience. I, I love the examples you provided. I think they're incredibly helpful, and I mean, even just to think about that that pilot uh, landing the aircraft analogy. In terms of total cost to society, what is actually more problematic? You know, like the the uh, uh, potentially a plane crash, which of course is devastating and horrible. But when you have uh, systematic issues in education and you're, and you're creating disparities and, and illiteracy and every other sort of issue coming from education, uh, in terms of just even basic dollars cost to society, I have to imagine poor education is much
1: worse. Much worse. Um, you know, I, I you know, I think the, uh, Unfortunately, Big swath of, of of American society, much much too big, that is that is not sufficiently literate and and to be able to do basic discriminations between obvious fact and fiction, such as conspiracy theories, and and not be able to do that logical thinking. And um, I, I think everything from low voter low voter voter turnout to um, refusing vaccination to somehow getting that confused with, uh, with, with political stuff, uh, you know, right up and down the line is really re- related to um, literacy. literacy.
0: Yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm a pretty major history geek. And so i um, very much so interested in the American Revolution. And a lot of people who write about that talk about the difference between the American Revolution and let's say the French Revolution, in terms of success in setting up a democratic uh, government, was that a majority of Americans were literate at the time, whereas very few people were literate in, in France during the initial French revolutions. And that was a complete and utter disaster. It's hard to have a successful democracy if people aren't literate and able to consume information to educate themselves
1: so that their, their voters you know every every day 24 7 we're all experiencing that here aren't we um it, it it's really amazing um the uh news and uh the, the social media and it's just amazing it's just amazing and it's it, it, it's sad and i really think uh just Having some fundamental sense of uh, knowing what words mean, and and and, and, w- and when you put them together, what that means, and um, really makes a big difference in our, our being able to understand the world and deal with it effectively, and um, you know, and, and live effectively with you know with one another.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's scary. So
1: there's nothing more. I think there's nothing more important than um, fixing public education. And the most uh, significant thing to try to improve and fix initially is uh, beginning reading instruction. But I don't don't wanna end this with anybody listening and thinking I'm cracking on teachers. Teachers work like dogs. Uh, It is such a demanding profession. And now, with everything going on with the pandemic and COVID, and virtual teachers are expected to do even more than the mountain of things um, uh, we demand of them and and expect of them, um, and and are not respected as they need to be and and should be. Let alone paid enough. Um, Jill and I, our our daughter Lynn, um, she's a just by the way, masterful DI teacher. she, uh, she, she did her teacher education uh, at Ohio University, not Ohio State, but in, in Athens, a big, great school, a great college town. Joe and I used to go there for uh, parents weekends and, and loved it. But Lynn, um, she was enrolled in a, the typical teacher education program um, in uh, she was uh, early elementary um, teacher ed and certificate. And she loved it. She learned a lot. She learned a lot of important things about kind of in child development and how to do uh, some things with the parent conferencing and, and so forth. Clearly learned a lot of stuff. What Lynn was not taught, like the vast majority of teachers coming into the profession, it's classroom management and how to really analyze a, a, a lesson and evaluate it. But so Lynn's first job, fortunately, was at a charter school uh, called Great Western Academy that one of my former um, PhD students, Jim Corden uh, started um, around, uh, I guess it was around 2000, the early 2000s. And it was all DI. So Lynn learned on the job uh, how to do direct instruction, and she had uh, second graders and, and, and just became a masterful teacher with uh, both positive classroom uh, management uh, stuff, motivational stuff, NDI. So, uh, and DI. So ABA and DI together. Today, Lynn is a reading specialist for one of the Columbus elementary schools. Um, And I couldn't do what she does. I I couldn't. It's with teachers, you're pulled this way, that way, this way. And it is really, really hard. And and so to expect teachers that are thrown into this critically important, you know, profession and job, and they come at it almost always with the best intentions, the most motivation and great, um, great passion but we see, you know, so much loss of, uh, of teachers, of quitting the profession, of going into other things. And, um, so, so the place to start is teacher training. And the place to start there is in colleges of education. And it's tough. But the more um, young people studying behavior analysis with an interest in improving education that would get into education itself as their profession and use the science of behavior analysis to help you know, inform and guide what they do and build upon their knowledge. It'd be so much different than the behavior analyst going into a school and trying to tell teachers and principals, well, you're doing it all wrong, try it this way or that way. Um, you, you know, To work in any area as a behavior analyst, you need to, uh, to learn and not just respect, but understand and live, you know, what are the contingencies that operate in that profession? What are the cultural practices? What are the expectations? So, and that's just been something that, you know, behavior analysis, behavior analysts, that we've needed to do better uh, all along. Uh, and, that's, and that's still, that's still a, big, a big challenge and a big need. But we're doing better at it. We're doing better. I
0: appreciate the distinction that this frustration isn't really targeting teachers. And I think that's consistent with, at least from this interview, Engelman's message. Yeah, there is a question within the, within the exchange that you write about where someone asked, you know, who should be held accountable? And he specified not, not the teachers. Isn't the teacher's fault. It, it should really ultimately be on the administrators because the administrators are the ones that are creating these contingencies. And so um, do you agree with that? And, and aside from potentially uh, holding administrators accountable, and then as you just previously said, the importance of teacher education, is there anything else you think would be helpful in, in, in helping improve uh, education and, and perhaps getting more direct instruction within schools?
1: enough taxpayers, a a sufficient number of uh, parents and families that demand uh, effective reading instruction. And um, the reason that ABAI has four or 5,000 members instead of 1,000 members, the reason behavior analysis and practice exists, the reason there's chapters all around the world, the reason the certification board has 50,000, 60,000 credentialed people around the world, is directly a function of people like Catherine Marie's parents of children with autism who saw the powerful benefits and effects of science-based education and treatment for their children and demanded it. Um, And we just haven't had that sufficiently enough in, uh, in, in education. Uh, and that's the story of, the, I mean, special education itself, the entire field came about because parents originally in the state of Pennsylvania, parents whose children were not allowed in schools, uh, schools could then simply say your child's too disabled or too disruptive, you have to find something else. There's a class action suit in the state of Pennsylvania that got the whole, the whole ball rolling and one thing led to another. And we had in 1975, uh, Gerald Ford signed then the Education of All Handicapped Children Act. And that is the beginning of modern special education as a field in in the U.S. very recent history. Of course, that's the law. It's been amended five or six times by Congress and now called IDEA. That's the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And all of that came about from, from parents. Um, really uh demanding we've got we've got to change things fortunately now we've got so many parents that are products of the schools and that are not sufficiently i, I believe literate to distinguish reasonable fact from obvious fiction and conspiracy stuff and goofy stuff that now parents They are very active, but they're going into school boards and they're saying, we don't want this book taught. We don't want our children to know anything about America's uh, history with uh, with racism and how we can get along better. Um, And school boards are reacting to that. Can you imagine all those parents going in and say, damn it, there's all this evidence on teaching our kids to read, do it. And you don't do it. We're voting you off the school board. And you're going to hire a different superintendent, and we're going to get get the ball rolling here. So. That that makes sense.
0: Yeah, the organization makes sense. um, And and, and perhaps efforts aimed at educating and, and helping parents organize. I read a book called How Schools Work by Arne Duncan, who was Obama's Secretary of Education. And before he was in that role, I think he was the superintendent of Chicago public schools. And in part of the book, he talked about looking at different outcomes of different schools and, and, and finding some schools that were just so problematic. The best thing to do would be to close the school and to, mm-hmm. to transport the kids to, to better schools that were nearby. And when he attempted to do that, the parents revolted and were protecting the school that was just absolutely horrible for their children and it was almost as if they had some uh, I suppose blind loyalty to the school uh, rather than looking at is are are the things that the school is doing actually helping my child learn
1: the things that they need to learn. Well and there's understandable uh, you know widespread deep-seated mistrust uh, by many communities and families of uh, you know, government in general, but 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 schools and leadership groups, and so be a, a, a multiple reasons for why you know the parents would revolt and say no, we we don't want our, our kids moved and distrust just being among them. But it could be the uh, practical aspects as well, and being closer to home and what we're used to, and um, who who knows, who knows. But yeah, back to uh, you know the the Engelman. Um, incredible seminar session that that we we had with him in 91 you know Cody it it ends with that he talks about uh they were doing some work in the Chicago public schools and this predates Duncan and um you know the anecdote you 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 were sharing but um it was a large uh like an, an interfaith organization supporting uh communities and children and disadvantaged kids in Chicago, and the Chicago White Sox were, I guess, uh, providing funds as well. And Engelman talks about going into this, I mean, it was a fifth or sixth grade classroom. And he had this uh, African American man with him who was a key leader in in this group. And he says how Engelman started asking the children just the most basic questions about you know, about the world. And they're sixth graders, you know, math and facts. And, and, and he's just, you hear his voice on that. And he's just, he, they couldn't answer anything. And he says, not one of these dumb, stupid questions could any kid answer. And he said that man was just crying and he had to leave that, you know, he just, he could not believe uh, these were kids who'd been in, in school since kindergarten and sixth graders and just in a sense, didn't know anything. Um, and you could replicate that today in, in in a number of, in a number of schools, but again, you can also go to some classrooms and have an opportunity to serve, to, you know, teaching as, as well as it can possibly be done. Um, uh, and in some cases, those are these miraculous, uh, you know, kind of self-made, self-taught, self-learned, um. Uh, educators and classroom teachers. In other cases, they are teachers that have come from, uh, you know, some fantastic teacher education programs, of which, there, of which there are some, not enough. There's more of them, in fact, in special education. You have a better chance of a special educator um, knowing about uh, the science of behavior and how it relates to Teaching and learning. There, there's more of an interplay between uh, ABA in the field of special education, less so in general education, um, you know. But there's pockets of excellence, and just needs to be built upon. Um, but it's tough. It's tough.
0: Yeah, and and much of what we talked about was was some of the unfortunate outcomes. It's heartbreaking. It's disturbing. I think, sort of laced within this conversation and within the conversation you transcribe with Engelman, there's this glimmer of hope of what we have the tools to do. It's just a matter of getting those tools in place. And so hopefully this interview and this article helps sort of motivate folks to, to push for these things in school and to, and to push for initiatives that are going to help, like educating parents, et cetera. So thank you for sharing all of that with us. Before we, we end the interview, is there anything else about this particular interview with Engelman or anything else you'd like to share with us?
1: I don't think so. You've um, do it, having this uh, great uh, chat with you, Cody, has got me. Uh, I'm going to go back and read all, reread all the articles again uh, myself. Maybe uh, maybe get to work on uh, one of the other transcribing one of the other cassette tapes. <laughs> um to do something like this with uh, some of our other uh fantastic uh you know scholars and leaders in the field and researchers that uh, that we were able to have in this uh, teleconference uh seminar but i w- i would just end by by you know thanking you and uh, just acknowledging what what you are doing you and your colleagues in in, in doing this podcast as one in, series as we, you know one important way um, that we as behavior analysts can can disseminate can share can teach one another um, within the behavior analysis community and then potentially um, well, without towards society at large as well so way to go way to go I've, I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you Thank you. Thank you.
0: And we'll link to all the resources. You provided a lot of references to resources throughout. We'll provide those in the show notes for the listeners. As Bill said, check out not only this paper, but check out the entire special issue on direct instruction and precision teaching that's out in behavior analysis and practice the journal. Bill, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you do transcribe more of these interviews. I think it was a really, really cool paper and a great uh, interview with you. So thank you. Thank you, Cody.
1: Take care, my friend.
0: Thank you for listening. Before you take off, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use to listen and to find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bad papers that we should review on the show. I'd like to thank a few people. I'd like to thank Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. I'd like to thank ABAI for sponsoring this podcast, and I'd like to thank my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin, as well as my production assistant for this episode, Jacqueline Wilson. As always, thank you to Jim Carr and his band New Latitude for letting us sample their song Cruising Altitude throughout this podcast.